open our Bibles to the book of Revelation, we're in chapter 20. This is um, where you find the millennium, one of the few places in Scripture where there is absolute, total unanimity on how to um, interpret this. That's me being ridiculous because there are people who identify themselves as historic pre-mill, predispositional pre-mill, pre-mill, post-mill, a-mill, a-mill with nuances, um, and there's a bunch of other ones. And I wish, the only thing that I'd envy John Hagee for, and certainly not his theology, is his beautiful charts. You ever seen John Hagee? I mean, he's got like from one end to the other. It's like, I don't know how much you spend on a chart like that, but man, those things are, are awesome. Um, I think the best thing for us to do is when somebody asks you, what are you when it comes to your millennial view? I, I think a good answer is, what do you mean, what am I? Are you a pre-mill or are you an amill? And it's like, oh, I see what you're doing. You're trying to pocket hole me into a particular position so you can decide whether I'm a good Christian or not based upon your definition of what you think I believe by what I say that I am. Um, I am a Christian. I think that's always a good thing to say. I am a, a believer in Scripture. I am a follower of, of Jesus Christ. And, and we believe the Word of God is the true, inerrant, infallible Word of God. And then I would say, rather than saying I am, you might say I believe that the certain position has good points based on the following scriptural reasons. And then, if they want to dig into the Bible with you, and you can go through the Bible and explain why you believe these different uh, positions with somebody, that'd be wonderful. However, as with a lot of our theologies in the church, we hold them tightly, we hold them dearly, and we hold them exclusively to other people who believe differently, but get us to open the Bible and show you why we believe that? Well, I don't know exactly why I believe it. I just know I believe it, and it's like, you, you know. So it enables us to get into our camps. It enables us to distinguish ourselves from other Christians. And hopefully you see the problem with that. The problem is Jesus Christ desires for his church to be one, his church to be united, his church to, um, to have a visible focused, white, hot ministry through the Holy Spirit, through the power of the Word in the world. And the Bible tells us that be careful if you bite and chew at each other because you will end up um, devouring one another. And that's what ends up happening more often than not as we seek to distinguish our particularities of the faith is we end up devouring one another. You're good, I'm not good. Now, that being said, there are certain particularities of the faith that are non-negotiable. That if you do not believe this, you are not considered actually a true church. This is not orthodoxy. This is heresy. Um, this means that you're, and there are entire denominations that are heretical denominations to which you should be warned not to attend. However, as we know with teenagers, if you warn them not to do something, they will run straight to it. So what we have to do is teach people how to identify the real from the untrue, the gospel from the false gospel, the uh, Satan who comes as an angel of light versus the true light of the world. So that if you're in a church, 
that is not proclaiming the gospel, uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the um, infallibility of the, of the scriptures, uh, the resurrection, the true physical resurrection of Christ on the third day, the, all of these things are essential to the faith that you're able to recognize those and that you um, are able to discern fact from truth. So that what we're going to do here as we continue to preach through the Bible is let the Bible interpret the Bible so that it's the only infallible rule of biblical interpretation. If you have a part of the Bible that's not quite clear, well, then you use other parts that are more clear in the Bible to interpret those. So you're not going to have contradiction in the Bible. Now, all of this being said, I am an Amil. Because <laughs> um, that's what people want to hear. So there you are. There you have it. I do not believe in the rapture. Oh, my goodness. We're going to lose some people there. Our viewership just dropped online from three to two, possibly. Um, then, uh, and there are even people that will never attend a church that would dare to say they don't believe in the, the rapture of the church. Um, then we want to sit down and talk about why I don't believe in the rapture of the church. It is um, in our area, it's probably a majority view. If you go to a bookstore that carries Christian books and you go to the prophecy section, you are going to find 90% of those to have that dispensational prophecy type of view that talks about the rapture of the church and things. Um, one of the reasons that you don't find a lot of books on some of these other things is they're a lot easier to figure out. The Amil position is pretty simple. Um, you're in a thousand years now. Symbolic. It's in the book of Revelation. Jesus is coming back for his church. That's it. <laughs> I mean, that's my position. Um, other positions are the pre-mill. And just real quick, because what I actually wrote down here, I can spend all my time explaining why I believe the ah-mill position, or I can spend my time preaching the outworking and rule of the church of this role of the church during the time when Satan is bound and the abyss is sealed. So what I'm going to do is, I'm just going to, I'm going to real briefly explain what these others are, very briefly, and then we're going to look at the outworking of the position of what does it mean for Satan to be bound and sealed, as the Bible says he is, and that's some kind of symbolic uh, language here. Um, <clears throat> what does it mean for the outworking of the church? And all I'm going to do to talk about the outworking of this for the church is use the Bible to say what we're supposed to be doing. So even if, by some fluke of whatever, I happen to be wrong about my ah-mill position, we're not going to be wrong about what the church ought to be doing. And this is one thing about the different millennial views. Um, there, are, there are significant differences which lead you to significantly different places. But eventually what it all comes back to is we all believe there will be a final day of judgment. There will be a return of Christ. And there will be an eternal state of, of the godly and the ungodly in two very different places. So this really difference has to do, what about the end times? What's, what's happening? How are these things uh, playing themselves out? Um, the the pre-mill historic and dispensational views um, talk, and the, the, <clears throat> this all has to do with when's Christ returning. So millennium is a word that means thousand years. I'm going to read the Bible before I start talking about this actually, but just so you know these words. One thousand is a millennium. Okay, so a thousand years in the millennium. Is Jesus going to return before the thousand year that talks about here? Does he return at the end of the thousand years 
Or are we in this thousand year reign now? So that's really, and then Jesus returns um, at the end of that. So let's look at the word of the Lord. Read verses one through six. Let me pray first. Lord, we pray that you would help us not to read our preconceived ideas of what we want to be true into this, but that we just hear the word. Let it speak to us. Um, help us to, to hear you speak clearly and plainly, and we might hear the gospel and be transformed more into the image of Christ through what we hear. In Christ's name, amen. So Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Let me go ahead and read the second part here. I'm not going to preach it, but just so we hear it. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The word of the Lord. So again, as we've seen this, the, the premillennial position is that Christ returns to the earth before this millennial reign where he will reign on earth. And um, toward at some point before this, there's the, the, the rapture of the church, uh, the, uh, the, the seven-year tribulation period, and halfway through it, they'll be taken out. Uh, and then there ends up being a different gospel for, for the Jews. Actually, it's the end of the church period. Uh, the church is all taken out, and he deals with the Jews as a reinstitution of sacrifices as memorials and these things. But it's, um, it, it's really, it's a, it's a minority, it's a majority view in bookstores and maybe in our area, it is a very small minority view in the history of the church and the church in the world. In the Reformed church, this is not a part of its history or belief system. Um, so then you have the, the Plymouth Brethren. I can't remember. I don't have this stuff written down. Uh, John Darby. I don't know if John was his first name, but Darby. Uh, the part of the Plymouth Brethren came up with the idea of the rapture um, sometime in the early 1800s, I think it was. And then it got into the Schofield Study Bible. Everybody bought the Schofield Study Bible. It had all this teaching in it, and it became the orthodox teaching of the day for people who followed 
that particular branch of teaching. It made its way into um, lots of different denominations. And so that's why it is popular in certain areas. However, I think if we look at the scriptures, we'll see that there's one gospel. There's only one hope. There is Jesus Christ for his church. And it's all people, whether they're Jew or Gentile, it's the same gospel, the same Jesus Christ. Post mills are on the rise today, particularly in so-called um, Reformed Baptist circles, where what they believe is, uh, they say they believe it because they have a very um, positive view of the gospel in the world, that what's going to happen is the, the gospel will continue to do its work in the world. There'll be more and more people won to Christ so that eventually, by the time a thousand years is done, whatever, and they'll, there's differences on whether that's a literal or symbolic, but mostly they believe it to be a symbolic period too. But by the end of that time, the world will be Christian that they'll, they'll be the rare unchristian person so that the world is ruled by the church. And then when Christ returns, he'll come to a world that is almost completely Christian. And then, but then Satan will be let loose for a while and there's this final battle. And these things work itself out differently. But when you have people who are so-called post-millennial in their eschatology, in their end times thinking, what they tend to be is very focused on government, very focused on rule, very focused on the fact that the church will eventually bring in all the Old Testament laws um, for righteousness and use those, and that will be what is used to rule the world. Um, so you have the church running the government, which never in the past has turned out to be a good thing, When because I would say, well, which church? And of course, they would say there will be a true church that will become more and more pure over time. And let's, what I've heard from people who hold an amillennial position, they will say, you know, we all need to hope that the post-millennials are, are right in that, and we ought to be preaching the gospel with such power and zeal that our hope and our desire and our belief would be that the world will become more and more and more Christian as time goes on. But that's up to the Lord. And we see things in Scripture such as the wheat and the weeds, wheat and the tares growing up at the same time. And um, it's like, so it seems the kingdom of, of God and the kingdom of Satan grow together until the last day and there'll be a, a, a reaping and a judgment. Now, if there were any pre-mill or post-mill people, they'd like to jump up here and correct all these things I just said and why they're right and why I'm wrong. But again, I don't want us sitting in a pew and going, why even listen to this if nobody is sure about what it teaches? And so what I, I want to do is I want to focus on the surety of what is taught. The surety of what is taught. And so I want to look first, a quick moment, as we sort of do justify this position that's called amillennialism. And the word ah means no millennium, and that's not true. It actually just means it's not a literal thousand-year rule of Christ. Not, it's, a, it's a symbolic number. <clears throat> First of all, it is in the book of Revelation. It's only in the book of Revelation. You don't see anything in the rest of the Bible about a thousand-year rule of Christ. It's in a book of symbolic numbers. It would be strange for the 1,000 in the book of Revelation to suddenly be a literal number rather than an apocalyptic, uh, symbolic-type number. Chapter 19 in Revelation has the nations destroyed. We've actually seen the end of the world a few times. And so, again, what we're doing is looking again at what Christ does, judging the world and how he deals with his church from the birth of the church at the, the resurrection and Pentecost, the ascension of Christ to heaven, until his final return. 
And so chapter 19, we saw uh, the defeat of you know, the beast and the false prophet. What does that look like? And these things are destroyed. And so we've seen other, the harlots been defeated. We've seen the world armies being defeated. And so from this perspective, we're looking at, well, what about Satan himself? How do we view what's going on with Satan and his demise? And so now we're going to take a look at this from the perspective of, from a heavenly perspective, looking at what is going on with the demonic forces and Satan himself opposed to the church. So Revelation 20, again, it's the only place where you're going to find this, but Christ is building his church, he's protecting his church, and he's winning nations to himself. That's biblical. Everyone agrees with this. So to verse 1, I saw an angel come down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit. And it has a key. Now don't miss it, because you might be thinking, oh, that's how he's going to get it open. Yeah, but don't miss the fact that he has a key. Because they they point that out, and that's important. So a key uh, represents authority over something. If you have the key to heaven and to death and Hades, the key to heaven, the king, the key, they give you the key to the city. You know, it's sort of what they're saying is there's not an actual lock, and you're gonna walk up to the city and get in. It's like you can go anywhere, do whatever you want, you know, within reason. But you do have this authority, and so this angel has been given this authority, and it's from heaven, from Jesus Christ, who's on the throne. Because of his, the death and resurrection of Christ, his ascension into heaven, where Satan has been defeated, and now the outworking of that is in this vision that John has here. <clears throat> this angel has this key. And then we'll see that this key, this authority, has been given to the church so that we have the ability to proclaim the gospel, and it builds the church. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We have the ability with these keys to protect the gates of the church. We talk about fencing the table. We try to help people see whether or not they have a faith that does seem to be true, that does seem to align with what the Bible says. There are lots of people who believe they're saved, but they don't believe Jesus died, or they don't believe uh, he raised from the dead. And so as a church, you have a responsibility to say no. You cannot be baptized or you cannot come to the Lord's table because you have a heretical view that is a condemning view. And that is the keys to the kingdom. And we'll look at that in, in just a second. Um, it's the key to be able to encourage the weak in faith, to be able to say we are a church that's proclaiming the gospel. And as a true church, we have the obligation and right to administer baptism in the Lord's Supper, to preach authoritatively from the word of God to the people. Um, We do not believe that the Bible teaches that you ought to be able to go and take a group of people off somewhere and go hang out at your pool and start baptizing people. Or that you can just go off somewhere and decide you're just going to, hey, let's just start doing the Lord's Supper. Like That's for the church. The church is given the keys to these things. Now, what constitutes a true church? That's a little more. It has to be They may be elders, deacons, officers that are following the word of God, men who um, have been called by God to a church, and that church has called them to that. So they're ordained to this ministry. So then they are given, they're stewards of the mysteries of God, the Bible says. that We're not kings over this, in a sense, we rule, but it's more the idea of stewardship. And you saw in the, uh, if you're into the Lord of the Rings stuff, there was the steward of Gondor. He wasn't a king, he tried to be. 
but he's just a steward. He's taking care of things. He's ruling while the king in the king's place. And so as elders of the church, we're stewards of the mysteries of God. And Jesus teaches that he will build his church and that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So we need to make sure we don't miss that, that Christ says that he will build his church. But first, before he begins this work of building the church, I want you to follow me a few places in the Bible. Go to Mark chapter 3. This is about Christ building the church. Now remember, during this time, we now have Satan who has been cast down from heaven. He is thrown in this abyss. He is bound for a thousand years and has this seal, which is another sign of ownership and authority, by the way. It's not just a The seal over the tomb of Christ was not just to make sure it wasn't broken, but that was a part of it. But it was also to say the Roman government claims authority over this, and anybody violates this, you, you are now against the Roman government. You are now against Caesar. You'll have Caesar to answer to because this is my tomb. This belongs, this is here by our authority. And then an angel comes and just rolls it away. And so this is one of the things we have to see. And so this ceiling says that God has authority over Satan and the demons. So Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 22 The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying of Jesus, he is possessed by Beelzebul, uh, by the prince of demons. He cast out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself, see they're saying Jesus is Satan. He's doing all these things by the power of Satan. That's how he's casting out demons. Um, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but it's coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Same word in Greek, bind, the binding of Satan. And who is the strong man? This is Satan. This is, Jesus has come, and he said, this is my mission. I am going to bind the strong man. I am going to... You know, you're breaking into a place, there's the strong man. I love that term. And uh, you, you got to take care of him first. Like playing a video game, there's always that last guy you got to get rid of. You know, that guy. So this is the, you got to deal with Satan. And you're going to bind him. And then what can I do? Plunder his house. And this is what Jesus has come to do. Plunder the house of Satan. The nations who have been caught in this um, deception and the, the gospel has not gone forth. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations, Isaiah 49.9 or 49.6, one of those verses. And they failed because they continually fell into darkness. They continually, the kings, they divided the northern and southern kingdom. Every northern king did what was evil in the eyes of God. Most of the southern kings did what was evil in the sight of God. There'd be times of restoration, times of renewal, times of revival, and then right back down. So that the nation was, able, was not able to fulfill the mission that it was given of drawing all nations to itself. Remember, you weren't just Jewish and a member of Israel because of birth. You could come from outside and be circumcised through faith and join 
Israel, which is what the mission of Israel was to be, to be a light to the nations. The Abrahamic promise was, you shall be a blessing to all the nations. So Israel was supposed to fulfill this, but they were unable to. So Jesus comes, he says, this is why, because the strong man has not yet been bound. And I have come to do that. And the only way he's going to be able to do this is through his death, burial, and resurrection. So, but look at the point. I'm going to plunder his house. And that's what he says I'm doing. When they're going around, he's casting out demons. That's nothing compared to the, Jesus later says, you will do greater things than these. There are greater things than casting out demons from people. Um, Jesus even tells the 70 missionaries he sends out, he says, don't rejoice that you can tell demons to leave and they listen to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It's like to be able to proclaim the gospel in such a way that people get saved is a much greater power. And I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for all the nations. And so we had to be careful of this, that even when we read about by his stripes, we are healed. Physical healing. Everybody likes physical healing, but that is nothing compared to salvation. You're going to die. I mean, you're not going to be perfectly healthy. Even if you have faith that is so great or whatever, and God does decide you will never be sick again, you're going to still die. So physical healing, if that's what you're looking for, then health is your guide. If you go to Jesus for anything other than Christ himself, then that's your guide. If you come to God for money, God is not your God, money is. If you go to God for health, God is not your God, health is. Because what happens when you don't get it? Either I have to beat myself up for lack of faith, or I have to beat up on God at our church for not holding up his end of the bargain. If you get sick, pray, maybe you get better. God has the power to heal. Amen. But the power to save, especially as people see uh, how we suffer, how we deal with good times, bad times, in faith, through the gospel, our light shines, pointing people to God the Father, and they see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. The point is to glorify your Father in heaven, come what may. And the Bible, the book of Revelation is written to say, you are going to go through hard times. There may be severe persecution, but let me tell you what's going on. There's a bigger thing at play. And so this is what we see, Jesus at work. Acts chapter 14. Verse 8. Acts 14, 8. Now at Lystra, or Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, he said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw that Paul, what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices and saying in like, I don't know how to say this word, Lycaonian. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. So they're, you know, you've seen movies where somebody does something that's amazing and they start calling him a god. So that's what's happening. They're calling Paul and Barnabas gods. Now, Paul and Barnabas are doing this to authenticate 
their apostolic mission to demonstrate the fact that God is actually saving Gentiles now, that the Holy Spirit is performing what he said he would when he brings in the gospel, which is you'll see these healings, you'll see these wonders, you'll see these things being authenticated as the work of God. But as the, the gospel grows, as scripture is completed, as the apostolic mission is now handed over to the church, you don't see these anymore because there's no need for these apostolic wonders to prove that the gospel is true. It's already been authenticated as true. Now what we have is, what's the power of God in salvation? Miracles? What's the power of God to salvation? The gospel. The gospel. The gospel. Do you know the gospel? If I had to call you up here, give you 45 seconds to present a gospel message, could you do it? I remember us being challenged in seminary with that very thing, and most guys in the room praying that the professor did not call them up to do that because never thought about that before. But how do you encapsulate it? How do you get it down to what it is? Um, we're sinners lost. You need a Savior. Only God can be that great Savior. God sent His Son to die on the cross. He became man to fulfill the law for us where we could not. And then He died so that, and He rose again for our justification, meaning that you used to be represented by God, but now if by faith you believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for His salvation and believe He was raised from the dead, now you're hidden in Christ he is your represented. Now, all the things that were given and won by Christ are given to us. We're hidden in him, and we have the riches of heaven, and we have the Holy Spirit as a deposit to be able to follow him and listen to him now. And so, 12, Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul, they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and they wanted to offer a sacrifice with the crowds that when apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and they rushed out into the crowd crying, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news, gospel, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Now, this is a part of what is now changing. He is no longer doing this. He is now having the gospel to go out in power because of the binding of Satan who is limited in a particular way, if you read Revelation, and it's that he's no longer allowed to do what in particular? Deceive the nations any longer. So that's what we're going to focus on here. And if you look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, it's all these letters of Paul. Colossians 2, 13. <clears throat> Paul's writing and he says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, so these are the nations, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, this is another view of what the binding of Satan looks like. Um, in chapter Revelation chapter 16, uh, is where you see Satan cast out of heaven and thrown to the earth. There's a battle in heaven. 
And we see that's a spiritual warfare is taking place. And it is finally won by the blood of Christ. Jesus wins this great battle. And so Satan is cast out, no longer able to accuse the believers in any nation, any place, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, before Jesus died on the cross, Satan had an argument that, you know, to be just, you need to punish all these sins. But now that Jesus has died and he's resurrected, God can say, no, I can be just and gracious at the same time because of Jesus Christ. And now you have no place here. Your argument is without merit. You have no place. He's cast out of heaven. And it says he's cast down the earth because his time is short. So this, in a sense, is a part of what is happening with the binding of Satan because Satan is, is losing his grip on the power of his kingdom in this earth because Jesus Christ is coming to win his church, to make his kingdom reestablished on this earth. Now you hear where the post-millennialists are starting to come in and go, yeah, and it's going to be brighter and bigger and bigger and it's going to grow more and more. The Bible even has parables about how does the kingdom of God grow. It's like, it's like a mustard seed. It's little, but it grows bigger than any other tree. So we might look at that and say, does that mean it's going to be bigger than anything else in the world at a particular time? Or, given over time, that the church is tremendously big, it's all over the world, it has traveled more places than it was ever, than the message of God had ever done in times past. And what has happened is, and what we're being told in Revelation, is because of the work of Jesus Christ, and this binding of Satan. And the reason I want to spend a little bit of time on it is because I think we need to be aware of this so that we can fulfill the gospel mission of this church and also in our lives with the recognition and knowledge that Satan does not have equal power with God at all. So it's not the opposite of black is white, the opposite of cold is hot, the opposite of God is Satan. No, Satan is a created creature, very limited in his power and might. And during this time, he doesn't have the power to deceive the nation. Part of what it means to deceive the nations is to actually lead them together in battle completely against the church to destroy it. So that the church is protected in its ministry. The reason there is still a church is because Satan is not allowed to gather all the forces. Have you ever wondered, why hasn't the church been stomped out yet, stamped out yet? Why is it even able to exist, even in countries where they seek to wipe it out completely? It still grows underground. And it's because of this binding of Satan. But toward the end, what we're going to see is, and we've seen it again and again in Revelation, as part of the deceiving, he's not able to deceive. The Greek word is planero, and it's where you get the word planets from. It means wanderers. It can mean to lead around, too. Not just to deceive by you lied to me and made me think something not right, but to actually cause me to follow you in a false way. So that what Satan is able to do toward the very end of time, is to be able to be let loose to then gather all these nations so they do begin to attack the church in a worldwide, global way, and then the end comes. But before all this happens, now is the day of grace. Now is the time of salvation. Now is the time of being able to go into the world and, and, and be the church. You may get yourself martyred in the process. You may be severely persecuted in the process. But what happens, even when missionaries have been... I mean, there was a saying in the, the older church that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's like the more they persecuted martyrs, the more people started to look into it and said, there must be something true to this. 
So you can't see individual persecution as, and this is what Satan is doing. He's not bound to do any of these things. The, um, the Bible in the New Testament, the writers say he prowls about like a roaring lion seeking somebody to destroy. He'd love to destroy the whole church. Can't do it. He's bound in that way. The church is protected by God. Um, God even uses Satan um, in church discipline where he says, turn the person over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. You know, let, let them, it's like you have a kid, and he's like, let them do it. They'll see, you know, don't let them run into a road and stuff like that. But, you know, you have certain things you just let somebody do, and they figure out the consequences of, of it. And it says, turn them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that their souls may be saved in the last day. That God even uses these things um, for his power and his glory. All things working together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So then John chapter 12 Beginning in verse 28. It says, um, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, <clears throat> saying, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So this is, again, this binding of Satan idea. The ruler of the world being cast out. It's Satan, the ruler of this world being cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, this is his ascension into heaven, the coronation in heaven, I will draw all people to myself. So it doesn't mean every single person, but it means all nations, all peoples will be drawn to himself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, you know, and then they accuse him of, of um, blasphemy and things. But this is the work of Christ on the cross is to disarm the powers, is to take the ability of Satan's righteous, um, his, his, his ability to charge us with sin and therefore we can't be um, saved, that's gone because Jesus Christ died on the cross and now he can be right and, and just at the same time. He can be just and forgiver at the same time. But also that at no point in time, Adam and Eve in the garden, Adam fell. Then you go through Abraham, the Tower of Babel. All these things continue to happen. The flood, it's like every step forward, step back, step forward, step back, step back, and it just doesn't go forward. Then with the reality and fulfillment of Jesus Christ, the gospel goes out to all the worlds, and we're, world, and we're told in the great commission of the church, go into the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded, and lo, I am with you to the end of the age. Now is the time of calling people into the ark, so to speak. Now is the time of being able to call the nations to come serve, worship Christ, proclaim his kingship. We're not trying to woo them to something better. There was an example we heard years ago. It's like, you know, you, you go down the road and you see your neighbor's house is on fire. You don't go over to them and say, hey, uh, why don't you come watch my TV? It's better than yours. Uh, my stereo is better than yours. Uh, you know, it's like, no, you go over there and you say, hey, man, your house is on fire. You need to come out. But we don't do church like that a lot. We want to say, hey, I know that, you know, you guys are doing good life, but, you know, life would be better if you came to church. You'd like it better in here if you came to, you know, so that's not the message. The message is your house is on fire. Come to the living water. 
And I remember Brian Stone, he said, John, you were talking about this. He said, I'll tell you, I was going, I was driving the other day, and I looked, and this guy's bushes were on fire. And he said, I literally went to his door, and I said, hey, man, your house is on fire. <laughs> I said, there you go. That's the way door-to-door evangelism ought to work, I guess. I don't know. But, you know, there's all these different ways of telling people their house is on fire in a way that is, you're led by spirit through the gospel to be able to present it in love. The, the worst way you can present the gospel is in hatred or, um, you know, telling people, you know, turn or burn. Uh, like, like you're so, like you're almost happy at the fact that they're, they're going to go to hell and be punished forever if they don't turn to Christ. It's like it should be done with tears and weeping, but with great joy um, of what we see happening. So, you know, back to Revelation to try to bring all this together. Um, this seal and authority over Satan and his dominion and remember that Christians are sealed by God with his own name on them uh, for their spiritual protection. God's seal doesn't protect Christians in every sense, but only in a spiritual salvific sense. In other words, you cannot lose your salvation. As a believer, God holds you savingly. It doesn't mean things won't happen to you physically, emotionally, spiritually, but not to lose your salvation, God holds you. In a similar way, the sealing of Satan prevents him from harming the salvific security of the true church. He cannot destroy or stop the true church. He can hinder it. He can, we saw, saw one of the apostles saying that we wanted to come to you, but we were hindered by Satan. Um, there are people who can be caught in a snare of Satan by um, giving in to certain lusts, temptations, and teachings and things, and suddenly you're caught in a snare. And then that's what we're supposed to do is help people to recognize you're in a snare. <laughs> you know, let's help you out, brother. Restoring that person. Watching ourselves lest we too fall into temptation. So Satan is bound, but don't, make, don't believe that that means his complete influence is gone. It just means that he no longer is able to lead the nations together to destroy the church. And he's no longer to keep the Holy Spirit away when the people of God go forward with the truth of the gospel. He can hinder it. But as Dr. Kelly, and I've quoted before, he says, the spirit blows where he will. But God has told us where some of the windy places are. And he has said, even though the, you know, China may try to keep the church out, it can't stop the Holy Spirit. It's going to go. And so that's the joy of the gospel, is that it cannot be stopped. All the nations will be drawn into Christ's light. I've already said a lot of these things. <laughs> so, I just want to close with this idea. Revelation, with, well, let's not miss this second part. Verses um, 4. So go to verse 4 in Revelation. I saw thrones... And seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and those who had not received its mark on their foreheads or hands. These are believers. Some have been persecuted. Some have been put to death. Some have been, uh, but they've been faithful believers. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So this thousand-year period being what we're in the middle of now, this time of Christ where the strong man is bound, and Revelation is written to encourage church that's going through hard times, 
And there are people who were put to death because of their faith. They're reigning. They're reigning with Christ. And what's that mean? It means that Jesus Christ is king. He has them on thrones and they're enjoying his rule and his righteousness now. And there's some sort of participation in that. It's not just that you're in heaven. You're in a disembodied soul state, but you still have some sort of, you know, I don't know how that works. Nobody does. But you're not just walking around, you know, saying how beautiful everything is. It's like there's, you're, there's a ruling with Christ. Whatever the Satan is in the abyss and he's bound and he's restrained. But what happens to us when he kills some of us? You're, you're ruling in heaven. You're, you're sitting on thrones is the way it's described to communicate something to us of whatever's happening there. It, it's, it's magnificent. And he says, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Now, the rest of the dead, obviously, this means non-believers, those who had died. Uh, and what does it mean they don't come back to life? Now, you're in Revelation, and so you had to be very careful about making too much theological um, new things just from something in Revelation. But um, what we see in Scripture is when anybody dies, there's not this soul sleep, but there is this um, a, a binding, a, 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 a putting in a place for final judgment. I heard it's kind of like when you break a law and you're found there's enough, you know, um, what the, what the, what's the thing you go to, the grand jury or something? They say, yep, there's enough. And so they put you in jail until you can be held, you know, for final judgment. And then final judgment, you're cast into prison. So there's this place for non-believers. But they don't experience this resurrection, this new life, like the believer does. Because immediately back into life, the rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Now, it can sound like he's saying the rest of the dead didn't come to life until the thousand years were ended, and, and that's the first resurrection. No, that's just saying, put that in parentheses if you want to. The rest of the dead didn't come to rest for a thousand years. But what we're talking about here is the first resurrection of the believers. So this is the first resurrection that happens. When we die, we're resurrected, blessed and holy. This is the six of seven blessings in the book of benedictions in Revelation. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection, <coughs> believers who die. Over such, the second death has no power. And the second death is what happens to non-believers, where they're cast into the lake of fire, tortured forever and ever, righteously and justly for their sins. But we will be, believers will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And then, you'll see later, the rest of Revelation is the marriage supper of the Lamb, and then this new heavens, new earth, this glorification, this stuff that happens later that no eye has seen, no mind has conceived, the things that, I mean, it's just, you know, what do you think heaven's going to be like? You're going to be like, no, it's going to be better than that. <laughs> and you come into your mind how good it's going to be. But for now, you are with Christ, reigning with him in a completely different way than the non-believer experiences at their death. The book of Revelation is written to be an encouragement to the church. The book of Revelation is written for those who are long-suffering, for those who are um, struggling with the sin they see around them, for persecution they may undergo, for um, they see a world around them that seems increasingly dark at times, and sometimes there's great revival. But it's written so that we might live lives of holiness and fruitfulness and to know that Jesus is building his church. And the only way that the gates don't hold up is if we press against them. But without the Lord and the love of Christ, we are nothing. And therefore, he gives us his word. 
He gives us baptism in the Lord's Supper. We're sealed, commissioned, and he tells us to come to him, to receive more of him so that we can go out to the nations that are right outside our feet to be able to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that the church has great power as long as it sticks to the gospel. The church has great power as long as we stay in the word of God. And so we thank you for your promised Holy Spirit. We thank you for um, the gift of Jesus Christ enabling us to come to you as Father. We thank you that we're about to partake in the Lord's Supper. And we just pray that you will remind us of what a blessing this really and truly is. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.